uh, one of my jokes for my stand-up set now is going to be, well, I, I started a podcast, so I lost my ability to read, because, like, everyone <laughs> everyone knows that a podcast is scary. <laughs> I think I was going to, I was adding that one to my set. I'm excited. <laughs> I feel like there's some way to tie in the um, Leah Michelle, like, not reading. Yeah. Apoptosis is going mad, my liver's gonna fail. Maybe it's from the radium I use to paint my nails. Well, say you hate me, carbon date me, throw me in the sea. I'll be back with time because I'm made of stardust and chemistry. A stardust and chemistry. Hello, and welcome to Cowboy Chemistry, where we usually talk about the wilder days of chemistry, but not really today. <laughs> this is going to be a special episode, but um, my name is Dylan Tharp E. Rally, and my pronouns are they, them. I'm a PhD candidate uh, at Texas Tech. My guest today is Dr. Sarah Victor. Um, she's an assistant professor also at Texas Tech. Um, how are you doing today? I'm doing pretty good. How are you doing? Pretty good. <laughs> it's going to be a heavy topic today. But um, yeah, I'm ready. I think we're, we're going to have some good good conversation. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and I usually start off by asking like how much you know about chemistry. So if you not very s- much about chemistry, <laughs> my <laughs> uncle actually was a chemistry professor before he retired. But that unfortunately does not transmit any chemistry knowledge to me. Mm. Um, so I know a lot about psychology, but not so much about chemistry. That's fair. Yeah. yeah. You probably don't really have to take chemistry for psychology degrees, right? No. I mean, if you're going to go the psychiatry route and do the pre-med kind Mm -hmm. of thing, then you would take chemistry. But for psychology PhDs, you don't – you typically have to take more statistics. Okay. um, Mm -hmm. But not so much chemistry or bio or physics. Really? You don't even have to take biology? I don't – we take um, breath courses and kind of biology as it relates to – psychology, so more mm-hmm. like neuroscience, but we don't have to take kind of the typical undergrad intro hmm. bio courses. Okay. Um, That's interesting. I, I would yeah. think you'd at least take like biology and then like yeah. narrow it down. I don't know. That's yeah, usually cool, at the graduate level, you take um, kind of a seminar in the neuro side of things as well as hormones and learning about medications and psychopharmacology and that piece. But mm-hmm. since we can't prescribe medications, usually it's more if we think that there's a biochemical factor, yeah. we are going to refer someone to an MD for, for testing. And then if they rule that out, then they come back to us. <laughs> gotcha. Um, and like, I'm pretty sure I know the difference between a psychologist and a psychi- psychi- psychiatrist, but what, what do you say is the difference? Yeah. So a psychologist is trained in therapy, typically an assessment. And so we get a PhD, which means that we write a dissertation. We are usually in grad school for somewhere around five or six years. Mm-hmm. Um, our PhDs are kind of unique compared to other PhDs because we also get training in how to be a therapist and how to provide mm-hmm. care. So we're doing the research side and the clinical practice side. Um, whereas a psychiatrist goes to medical school 
they do the same medical school training that all MDs do, mm-hmm. and then they go on to residency and specialize in psychiatry. Um, so they, some of them do therapy, um, but they do a lot more medication management mm-hmm. and kind of that side of things. Okay, gotcha. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, I've been in both therapy and had medication prescribed, so I've seen psychiatrists and psychologists. Yes. So I've gotten very familiar with the difference. Um, But, yeah, for the people who are listening who maybe not, because, um, yeah, so, again, usually we talk about chemistry, but today um, I really wanted to talk about your research um, because while we're late, I did want to do something for Transgender Awareness Week, which was from November 13th through 19th. Um, leading up to the Trans Day of Remembrance, where we remember trans um, women and men and non-binary people that have we've lost due to violence. And one of the people, I guess, first of all, we should probably put a little bit of a trigger in here. We will be talking about self-harm, suicide, and other forms of external violence committed on trans people. And this is just something that I'm very passionate about. And so I really wanted to put um, this in because you had sent a thing out about helping get the word out about yeah. what your research results were. Yeah, of course. Um, and I think that would be really good to talk about. Um, one of the people that were um, killed this year was someone named Aaron Lynch, um, who was a 26-year-old trans man. He was actually shot and killed by police um, on July 7th of 2022 during a mental health crisis. He was having a mental health crisis, and um, his family called the police to try to get him help. Mm-hmm. They came once with someone who was trained for mental health situations, but they couldn't find him that first time. Then they came back again later without the mental health person, and um, he was killed in that encounter. And so mental health and this violence and all of these things go hand in hand. And so, you know, I just really wanted to talk about, you know, maybe I I can't do anything about other people hurting the trans community, but maybe we can talk about us hurting ourselves and making sure that Mm -hmm. we can, like, be resilient to that because there's so much going on right now. And I just really hope that we can have a good conversation about like how, what puts someone at risk? What is these factors that are affecting when it comes to um, trans people and keeping us safe as much as possible? Um, and yeah, so I know you're, pro- you are part of the, you're the principal investigator, right? Of mm-hmm. the um, tracking risk over time yes. lab. Yeah. And so um what do you, what does that lab do? I guess we'll start there. (laughs) Good question. Um, So we do research primarily trying to understand risk factors for self-harm and suicide. Mm -hmm. And um, we have kind of a couple different lines of research. One focused on folks that are trans and non-binary. One focused on folks as they leave inpatient psychiatric care, like leaving a psychiatric hospital. Mm -hmm. Um, And Really, the way the reason that we have the name Tracking Risk Over Time Lab is twofold. One is it allows our acronym to be TURTLE, and I really love turtles. <laughs> That's the slightly less exciting version. Um, but it's also because we psychologists have done a lot of research to try to understand who is at risk. Right. So this group of people compared to this other group of people. But we're pretty bad at predicting how risk changes over time. Mm -hmm. And that's like the critical question for a therapist, for instance. If your client comes in and they're really, really struggling, you want to know, like, is this person going to be able to stay safe until I see them next week? Right. And yet we know so little about, like, why is someone at higher risk today versus yesterday or this hour versus last hour? Um, 
And the hope is that if we can understand like how that risk changes, we can do things to intervene before it becomes a crisis, before right. there's a, a situation where family's calling um, the police, you know, before someone is struggling so much that they end up in the hospital, you know, or or in a confrontation with police or, mm-hmm. or others. Um, and so that's really what sparked my interest in these kinds of research questions to, to try to follow people over time. Um, to say, okay, we know that maybe by nature of your background or your experiences, you're in this group that's considered to be at higher risk. But, you know, how is that risk changing? Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. Because I'm sure as a therapist too, you have to think of like, okay, what can I give this person? Mm-hmm. What tools do I give this right. person to actually help them? Because I've gone, again, I've gone through therapy. Some things that people have given yeah. me have not helped at yes. all. And then other things I was like, this is fantastic. I yes. need to keep doing this. Um, one thing, so my specifically, I've had PTSD. Mm-hmm. And so like they say EMDR is like the treatment. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. I don't know if it was just my therapist and me not getting, not vibing, but that did not yeah. work for me at all. Yeah. And so it's really, it's good to see like, what is the different modalities at work, which, yes. um, yeah. <laughs> yeah. And, and I think one of the things that I often tell people just in like my sort of psychologist hat, not my researcher hat, most of what I do day to day is research, but in my therapist hat and my person who's been in a lot of therapy hat is it's so hard to find someone that you click with. Mm-hmm. Um, and so often I'll talk to people and they'll say, well, I tried therapy, but it didn't work, so I'm not going back. Mm-hmm. And I'm like, no. Like, it, just because the first person or the second person or the third person, like, didn't click or something didn't help doesn't mean that every option is going to be the same. Mm-hmm. I give the example sometimes of, like, if you move to a new city and you go to get your hair cut – and it doesn't come out the way like it's not it's not good, right? Very few people would say, "Okay, I'm just never going to get my hair cut again," right? right? You'd be like, "Oh, yeah, that didn't go well. Like I'm going to go try somebody else." But because there's so many obstacles to getting into therapy, there's stigma, there's like barriers to finding someone, there's finances. If you get over all those hurdles and then you go and it doesn't click, mm-hmm. people are often like, "Oh, never mind. Like this was too much work." I'm like, "Oh, like you know, just keep trying. And I Mm -hmm. also tell therapists, like our grad students who are training, um, keep in mind that that first session to use, like every other first session you've ever done, but for that person, like it's really important that that go well. Mm -hmm. Um, Because if it doesn't, they're not coming back, Mm -hmm. right? Um, Yeah. Yeah, because I've been to a few first sessions that I'm like, oh, this is not going to go well. (laughs) Right, right. And usually I give them a couple more chances because I'm like, maybe... You know, I don't know. I just need to, like, interact with them more. But, yeah, there's been a few that I'm just like, oh, no, we're not going to work. Yeah. (laughs) Because it does rely on that connection. Mm -hmm. You know, we like to talk about psychology. There's a lot about psychology that's a science, but Mm -hmm. there's also an art to it. And, you know, some people are going to like my personality. They're going to like my style as a therapist. Some people are not. And that doesn't mean that, you know— that person can't be helped by another therapist or that I might not be a good fit for somebody else. It just means <laughs> that we're not a good fit. Yeah. Um, and especially for folks that are trans or non-binary, that, that can be an extra struggle to find someone because a lot of training programs don't do a great job of training therapists to understand that gender identity is like an important part of being a culturally competent therapist. Yeah. Um, and so that's just an added hurdle of trying to find somebody that's like, 
has at least some awareness of what that experience might be like, even Mm -hmm. if they're not trans or non-binary themselves. Yeah, absolutely. And, like, that cultural awareness, because, like, I think a lot of people don't realize that, like, the trans community, the queer community in general does have a culture. And there are so many, like, words and things that I've felt like I've had to explain to not queer therapists, like, every single time I've had to explain it. (laughs) I, uh, one of my friends suggested that I switch from the therapist that I had at the time to his therapist, who was just, like, a straight white dude. Yeah. Oh, no. And I was like, no, I'm not (laughs) starting over. The therapist I have, she's gay, she gets it. There are certain things about my life that I don't want to have to explain. Right. Like, Mm -hmm. I'm not here to educate you about what it's like to be a gay woman in Texas. Right. Yes. Like, I'm going to tell you how I feel about it and how it affects me every day, but I'm not your teacher. That's not really how this is supposed to work. Yeah. yeah, and then and then the other thing that I, that always irks me with um, some straight therapists is they always go the extra mile to be like, mm-hmm. I might mess up your pronouns and I'm so sorry and I'm, and I'm like, oh god, like even if you do, like just say the right, right. one and move on. Like, come on, I don't want to sit here like because again, that's like that's part of the thing that I need therapy for is people messing them up. Yeah. So, like, you know, like, if, if it, you know, and to a certain degree, like, that's a stressor. Right. I don't want to hear your guilt about getting it wrong. Yes. <laughs> like, it, it's, it shouldn't be your job as the client to make the therapist feel better. And exactly. a lot of times, like, whether it's therapists or other people, when they mess something up, it then becomes this, like, oh, I'm, like, over-apologizing, you know, and then it becomes the expectation is that then the person whose pronouns were messed up has to be like, oh, no, it's okay. Oh, sorry. I didn't mean to bump that. Um, I gesture a lot. Me too. Um, Yeah. Yeah. Where it's like it shouldn't – you're now making it worse because not only have you messed up the person's pronouns, but now you're putting them in a position to say, oh, like it's okay to try to kind of make you feel better about Mm -hmm. messing it up. Which is like, no, deal with that on your own time. Like how bad you feel about messing it up, but don't make this someone else's responsibility. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. And so, yeah. Therapy is good though. As much as we're talking about like therapy, find a therapist that works for you. I love therapy. It helps a lot. I've, um, I've gone from someone who had to be in the hospital for a couple days to mm-hmm. now I feel fine on a day-to-day right. basis, you know? So, like, therapy does work once you find someone that you can work yes. with. So, um, don't give up. And there are, even in Lubbock, Texas, there are queer-friendly therapists it's that true. are fantastic. Yes. So, um, yeah. yeah. Should we give a shout-out to... <laughs> <laughs> shout-out to the queer therapist the that queer everyone therapist. seems to have. <laughs> Bethany Luna, highly recommend. Oh, she's great. Every awesome. every queer person in Texas in Lubbock, Texas yeah, sees yeah, Bethany Luna. For real. It's, <laughs> Me and my husband went to her for like premarital yeah. counseling. Yeah, waited. I love it. I love it. <laughs> She's wonderful. Shout out to her. Awesome. <laughs> um, but yeah, let's get into. I sent like a list of questions, yes. and we can talk about um, more about your research. So um, the first one is just like the general. What is the the general risk of self harm and suicide in the trans community? Like, what percentage of trans people struggle with self-harm and suicide. Yeah, so it's high. Um, The estimates vary a lot depending on what kind of research study you're doing. Mm -hmm. Um, But in general, the estimates are typically double to triple what you would see the estimates for cis-hetero folks. Um, So that's true for, I was just looking this up today to confirm that I was like remembering accurately. Um, 
So for, like, non-suicidal self-injury, like, cutting or burning, the kind of general prevalence among cis straight folks is around, like, 15%. Around In trans folks, it's around, like, 550. Mm-hmm. Um, and you see similar patterns for suicidal thoughts and suicide attempts. Suicide attempts are less common, but the disparity is similar. Mm-hmm. Um, and I always kind of want to add the caveat of, like, the fact that that is the case does not mean that trans people are inherently, like, sick or, you know, like... Right. Because I feel like a lot of times those statistics get thrown around as, like, look, these people are, you know, somehow disordered, right? Right. And it's like, well, actually, the reason that these things are happening seems to be related to... Ex- negative experiences mm-hmm. with other people, like, you know, experiencing transphobia, um, internalized transphobia, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and so I just always had that caveat. Yeah, absolutely. Because, yeah, like you said, it, it seems to be used against trans mm-hmm. people a lot of like, oh, well, they are, you know, they always hurt themselves. They always, yeah. like, clearly there's something wrong with them, which like, yeah, there's something wrong in that you are treating right. them so poorly that right. they are internalizing that, right? Yeah. Like, we internalize that because, like, I feel like my my mental health issues came up when someone I cared about started telling me transphobic things, mm-hmm. right? Yeah. And then someone that was someone you cared about is suddenly telling you such awful yeah. things. It really throws you through a loop. Of and, like, you're, it doesn't – at least in my case, it, like, didn't make sense. Like, how can mm-hmm. you say you care about me but you're saying all these awful things about me, you know? Yeah. And especially if that comes up from when you're little. Oh, like, yeah. I was an adult when this happened to me, but when you hear it from when you're little, I can only imagine – yeah. Like, the trauma that you could experience. Like, my family, luckily, was not – never said really horrible things about anyone. Yeah. They're just like, gay people are gay. Yeah. They, they were very <laughs> neutral about it. They're like, gay people are gay. They're gay. Good. Yeah. Good for them. <laughs> yeah, there's actually some research that came out maybe a year or two ago looking at trans youth and mm-hmm. specifically asking, like, how often do people respect your pronouns or use the correct pronouns? And they showed this really clear relationship where um, the the less often people used their pronouns, uh, the more likely they were to report having attempted suicide. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, and obviously correlation doesn't necessarily mean causation, but, right. you know— Certainly, if you're in an environment where people are referring to you in a way that does not feel accurate to you, mm-hmm. that's going to be a huge stressor, especially if you're a youth where you're, like, you're in an environment where you can't really change it. Right. You know, so many kids, like, if your parents are treating you poorly or whoever you live with is treating you poorly, um, you might not have the ability to say, oh, I'm going to move out, you right. know. And that's also true for a lot of adults as well, but especially for kids. Right. They have very little control over what's going on yeah because yeah. like um that's one thing my grandma would always tell me when I was little was like you know like when you're a kid you don't get mm-hmm. control but once you're 18 all of your control is yours yeah you know she would tell me that because like I think she left her home at 18 like she yeah. was gone like she yeah. you know and I I don't think her mother was abusive or anything mm-hmm. but they did experience a lot of poverty yeah and so you know that's stressor in it in sure. and of itself you know she used to tell me about eating sugar sandwiches you oh, know yeah and so but yeah, that that's just one thing too. Like kids just to have no control and people don't yeah. realize that like how much of a stressor that is all by yes. itself. The fact yes. that you have no control. Yeah. And so when it comes to like self-harm and suicide, I don't think I put this in my list of questions, but okay. like the self-harm part of it, like does that 
or how do I put this? Because self-harm is essentially a negative coping skill. Mm-hmm. I guess suicide would also be considered. I, I don't, like, what's the difference between, yeah. like, why people self-harm or why, you know, what what is it? I, I guess, like, you know, because they say you can, like, use your rubber band to, like, right. snap your wrist as a, instead of hurting yourself. Like, right. what is the the thing that it's doing that yeah. you can maybe find another alternative yeah. if you are someone who struggles with self-harm? Yeah, so... There, it depends a little bit on the person. Like, mm-hmm. we've done a lot of research asking people, you know, why why are you doing this? Um, and the most common reasons are it helps the person feel better in the short term mm-hmm. um, in terms of, like, you feel some kind of negative emotion that's really intense and the self-harm kind of interrupts it in the mm-hmm. short term. Oftentimes in the long term, then people have other kind of negative emotions about it. Um as well as using it as a form of sort of self-punishment. We ha- mm-hmm. have that being reported a lot. Um, for suicide, it seems like it's more commonly this sort of, like, I can't tolerate how I'm feeling anymore. Mm-hmm. Like, I feel so terrible, and I don't think it's going to get better, and this is sort of a way to, like, escape or end that permanently. And in some ways, there's some overlap, but then, of course, there's a lot of ways that they're different. And sometimes people will use self-harm as a way to cope with suicidal thoughts. Mm. So in therapy, it's always really tricky. Like, it used to be that kind of the advice that therapists got was like, you should have people sign a contract that says that they're not going to harm themselves. And I was like, well, A, people can sign whatever they want, and that doesn't actually mean that they're going to do that. But B, if the behavior's doing something for you, right, like human— humans, animals, like everybody, we do things for a reason, Mm -hmm. even if we're not always sure what that reason is. Um, And so if someone's engaging in self-harm, it's serving some purpose, right? Right. It might not be helpful in like the long, long, long term, but it's serving a purpose. And so if you just tell someone, oh, just don't do that anymore, like, well, that's not super effective. Like you got to give somebody some skills instead so that when they're feeling really terrible, it's not just like, well, I can't do that thing that used to work, but I don't have anything else to do. Right. I just, I'm just going to feel terrible. So we spend a lot of time in, in therapy kind of helping people identify what purpose it's serving for them and then what else would serve that same purpose or mm-hmm. what else might kind of address that. Gotcha. So, yeah. Yeah. Um, it's interesting because, too, when – I've heard at least with suicide, it's also about a bit of control. Like mm-hmm. I have no control over anything else, yes. but I can control this moment. Yep. And so that goes back to like kids, like they have no yeah. control. So maybe that's part of a trigger of yeah. like, I can at least do this. Um, and and that yeah. comes up with self-harm too, where it's like, I can't control the emotional pain I'm feeling, but then mm-hmm. like the physical pain is something that I do have control over. Um, we do, I do hear that pretty frequently from folks. Mm. Yeah. Um, and so as far as like when, with the self-harm and suicide, what, how does that translate to, um, like depression, anxiety, other mental health conditions as far as like risk factors and what's going on in yeah. that term? So <laughs> it's, it's a weird way to ask that question. No, 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 it's, it's similar in that like we do see that trans folks tend to be more likely to have like a diagnosed mental health condition than mm-hmm. cis folks. Um, and, I think there's probably a lot of reasons for that. So part of it is like these experiences of stressors, right? Mm-hmm. Um, which we know are associated with mental health conditions 
in everybody. But if you're in a population or a group that experiences more stressors, then you might end up having a higher rate of those things. It also relates to just like who's likely to get a diagnosis, right? So it could be a situation where somebody is struggling with gender dysphoria, they go see a therapist, maybe the therapist isn't kind of trained in gender-related things, and so they say, oh, you're depressed, oh, you're anxious, Mm. Um, which you might be, right? But then the question is, is this kind of a, a standalone, like, major depressive disorder that isn't related to gender at all, or is this something where it's kind of real because you don't feel comfortable in your body because you're the pronouns that other people use to refer to you don't match what you know what you would prefer to use what you would be using ideally um i'm not <laughs> being super clear about this but like you know is it something that is, would is be resolved a- by transition or is this something that's just kind of its own thing um, right so i think i understand it is like is the call coming from inside the house that's a good way to think about it yeah mm, yeah, yeah. Um, I, I was just going to say, it's kind of like that thing that I think we've talked about before where it's like, yeah, you might be genetically predisposed to having some kind of lung cancer, but if you also start smoking cigarettes and you live in an industrial area, it's going to exacerbate mm-hmm. that problem. Right. Yes. So it's kind of like what you were saying, like if you grow up in an environment that's hostile towards you, it's yeah. going to exacerbate whatever problems you might already have or just create the problem. Sure. Yeah. yeah. I think that's a good way to that's think about it. how I understand it. Yeah, absolutely. Um. Yeah, and then so are these risks um, different based on, like, backgrounds? So, like, as far as, like, race or age or that kind of stuff? Because, um, you know, as far as external violence, mm-hmm. it's almost always black trans women that yes. end up being hurt. Um, so I was curious how that plays out in self-harm behaviors as well. Yes, and that is something that we have, like, a little bit of data on, but honestly not enough because there just hasn't been enough kind of research specifically at that intersection but mm-hmm. we know that people of color trans people of color on average are more likely to report history of self-injury suicide and also mm-hmm. are more likely to report negative experiences around discrimination victimization um, all of those kinds of external stressors lack of family support lack of community support um and so I think all of those things are certainly tied together right mm-hmm. um I know from talking with folks that sometimes uh, trans people of color will say, like, well, I don't feel like, I feel like when I go into trans spaces, they're mostly white. I feel like if I go into, say, black spaces, they're mostly cis. Like, I don't Mm -hmm. feel like I fit in anywhere. Um, And so that, like, struggle to connect or feel like there's a community, I think, is maybe an extra layer for those folks. Um, Certainly in terms of other kinds of experiences or identities, like, money matters, right? Like mm-hmm. socioeconomic status matters for access to care, for the ability to, you know, get your basic needs met, get access to gender affirming care, get access to mental health care, right. the ability to leave an unsafe housing situation to be able to afford like a, you know, a security deposit somewhere else if you need to move. Right. Um, all of that stuff I feel like is super critical. And we know that that those things are related to mental health. Um, Age is a tricky one because the sort of environment for trans people is so different now than it was like 10 years ago, 20 years ago, 30 years ago. So when I talk to trans folks who are older, their experience of transition is just very, very different Mm -hmm. um, in terms of when it 
often happened in their life and um, kind of the consequences of that. So I th- there's been a little bit of research on that, but I don't think it's as definitive. Like, because we're getting more kind of research on trans youth and trans youth mental health, but we also know that cis youth are more likely to report mental health problems compared to older cis people. Right. Because there's changes in, like, how comfortable people are talking about mental health. Mm -hmm. And so I know that that's something that we're just sort of, we have to sort of wait and see, like, by the time that people are, by the time that people who are currently trans youth are, like, in their 50s. Right. Will they look like trans people who are in their 50s right now Mm -hmm. look when we ask them about their experiences? Um. They'll probably look different, but I don't know how <laughs> how different. But absolutely, because like especially if they had access to transition younger, yeah, you know that's definitely going to be a lot different. Because like most trans people, even in my generation, didn't transition until they right. were adult. You did. I knew. I know one trans person that transitioned under the age of eighteen. Yeah, um, that is now an adult too. You know, right. like now I know kids right. that are seven that are yeah. that are socially transitioned. Right, right. like they because that's another thing that. You know, there's this, I guess they call it a culture war where they (laughs) are saying kids shouldn't have access to gender affirming care, you know, and it's like, well, but gender affirming care for a seven year old is letting them pick their name and changing their pronouns. No one's giving a seven year old surgery. Yes. Yes. (laughs) And that's something that I just don't understand (laughs) why I'm like, no one is doing surgery on seven year olds unless it's like an appendicitis situation. Right. Right. (laughs) Like unrelated, you know? Um, Yeah. It's like people create this sort of boogeyman idea of like, well, what if, you know, this extreme situation, you know, it's like, A, with any other kind of medical care, like, somebody might regret it in the future or change Mm -hmm. their mind. We don't treat that as a reason to not give people care. Right. Um, You know, and B, they're not doing gender-affirming surgery on, you know, people under the age of, you know, 14, 15, 16, maybe— in, like, the rarest of cases, Um, but certainly not when kids are that little. Right. I mean, the only gender-affirming care that occurs in people that are are minors is circumcision, and it's not a thing that children choose. Right. It's a thing that adults choose for their children. And then there's intersex surgeries where they will take children that are intersex and conform conform them to a gender Mm -hmm. even if that is unnecessary. Right. Yeah. I mean, because that's that's really the one. Like, you know, you talk about circumcision, but, like, really the one that we would consider a gender-affirming or a gender, like, that really translates to a gender Mm -hmm. care would be an intersex surgery. And those kids don't consent. They're right. days old or weeks old when these surgeries right. happen usually. And again, they're usually not necessary unless the child's having issues like urinating or something. Right. There's usually very little reason to change what's going on downstairs. Yeah. No matter how right. ambiguous it may be. And right. these and these people would say, Oh, it's the parents' right to choose that for their children. Well, if the parents want to do what their children want to do, why is that not their right also? Right. It's a very yeah. sort of hypocritical, like we want parents to have say over what their kids do with, for the instance. Parents' rights movement. Right. You know, well, well, parents should get to decide if their kids get the COVID vaccine or not, and we shouldn't mandate that kids get the COVID vaccine in schools. But parents shouldn't be able to, you know, uh, support their kid who wants gender-affirming care. Right. It's like, well, at least if you're going to, you know, have these sort of biases, at least be consistent about them, yeah, you know, versus saying, well, you know, 
if I agree with this thing, then parents should do it. But if I don't agree, then parents shouldn't have the right to do that, right? right? Like, ultimately, it should be a decision that is made in families, in consultation with, you know, professionals to decide what's best for that kid. And right. often what's best for that kid is transition. Like, we have mm-hmm. data that shows that kids who want access to transition, you know, social often social transition or things like puberty blockers um, – do better in terms of their mental health when they can access it versus if they want that access and they can't get it. Right. Um, There is solid data on that. All of the kind of major medical and psychological and psychiatric organizations say gender-affirming care is good for mental health and should be accessible. Right. Um, There's not a debate in the medical profession about that or in the psychological profession about that. Yeah, because people will say, oh, for everyone that says this, there's one that says not to do it. And it's like, that's just a lie. Yeah, (laughs) It's just straight up a lie. Like, you might be able to find a guy who says that, but, you know, I could find a chemist who doesn't, I don't know. I don't have a good example for chemistry. (laughs) Um, I could find a biologist who doesn't believe in evolution. Right. That doesn't mean that evolution isn't a real thing. And that 99% of biologists don't say evolution is real. (laughs) It's like you could could find a climate scientist that says climate change isn't real. Yes. You could find a chemist that still thinks alchemy is a thing that they can do. Like, oh, yeah, I'm sure somebody's still trying to make gold out of not gold. Yeah. Yep. Arguably, we can do that, but that's a different conversation. <laughs> we can do it. Or that guy who thinks that chickens can make calcium in their yeah. body. Yeah. There's a guy who thinks that's that fascinating. they're um, doing cold fusion. They're doing cold fusion oh. in their little chicken bodies. <laughs> There's a whole book about it. That's impressive. <laughs> he won a Nick Nobel Prize. So. There you go. There you go. <laughs> we ended a whole episode about that. I that's was like, amazing. And so I had to explain, I was like, yeah, no, like, to do that, the, the chicken needs to be the temperature and pressure of the sun. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> I don't think those conditions exist in a chicken. Um, <laughs> yeah. And then the other thing that I think is interesting about the hormone blockers, because yeah. people are very opposed to these hormone blockers, too, which I don't understand, yeah. is like, like, people go through what's called precocious puberty. Yeah. That's mm-hmm. why they were invented. That's oh, why yeah. we use them, is because children were going through puberty yep. too early. We have so much safety data yeah. showing that once they come off of it, they'll go through a regular puberty. Yep. You would think that that would be a positive thing, because all it means is, like, you're just delaying what would have right. happened. And I think it's also, people often think of these kind of interventions as, like, not doing anything everything is great, and doing something, there's, like, a risk of something bad happening. Right. But you don't realize that not doing something also has risks, right? right? It has risks physically. It has risks emotionally. And so it's not this, like, oh, everything would be fine if you just didn't didn't allow kids to have access to this. Um, and if there's even the tiniest risk, then it's, it's a problem. It's like, well, everything has risks, right? Mm-hmm. Not doing these things has risks. Going through puberty is not reversible, right? Once right. you go through it, you can't undo it. So the idea of like, well, are, you know, blockers being unreversible? A, we know that when you stop them, everything proceeds as as it previously did. But B, even if there was a risk of that, your other alternative is also a pathway where you can't undo it, right? Because, right. I mean, if you let them go through whatever puberty they were going to and they are trans, then that's only going to mean that right. they're going to need more surgery, to affirm who they are and that surgery even has a risk i mean so yeah like you said like not doing anything does not come without risks right yeah i think that's just an interesting like people don't think about all those things though Um, i I mean a lot of these debates i think unfortunately quote-unquote debates are not actually about the science they're not about what 
you know, providers say is the best care. It's not about what trans people and their families say they need. It's about, you know, politics and scoring points and, you know, making these arguments because, at least in my view, I think because because the trans population is comparatively small percentage-wise, there's a lot of people who don't know someone who's trans or they don't know that they know someone who's trans. Oh, yeah. <laughs> um, That's the so, biggest thing. People don't know that they know trans yes. people because I've had conversations with people where they don't know that mm-hmm, I'm trans. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and it's like, you can't say that. I'm not going to listen here and listen yeah. to you say this stuff to me yeah. just because you don't know. Right. You know? I think it's this way that politicians have this ability to say, oh, there's like this sort of, this like, you know, this threat around the corner Mm -hmm. and people who don't know any better are like, I guess that's like, I guess I should be scared of a trans person in my bathroom. And it's like, I'm sorry. Like in what world is this person ever going to be a threat to you? Everybody needs to pee, you know? Um, And like, that's the other thing. Like people don't realize how terrified trans people are to even go in the restroom. Like they're scared that they're going to get beat up. They're not in there to hurt you. Right. Like yeah, yeah. They're almost always at more than a at more of a risk than yes than everybody else. Mm-hmm. But Especially it is funny to me women. that yes. like cis people think they can always tell. Yes, it's like no, you can't. They babe. can never yeah. tell. They can yes. never tell. You think you yes. Yeah, that's, that's very true. Because they'll point to some like arbitrary feature on your face. It's like oh, you have a square jaw. A lot of people who present as women and who are women. Have square jaws. Yeah. And it has yes. nothing to do with what's in their pants. Yes. Like, why is that a... That's such a weird... Yeah. And it's also, like, the crazy thing to me is when people are like, oh, well, biology is a fact. Sure. But the the spectrum of male and female, even in biology, it is a spectrum. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It's not oh, yeah. black and white. It's not, like, it's not as, as set in stone. It's not a law. Like, it's... There's a lot of things that can be happening there. So for you to say, like, oh, this, you're just ignoring biology, it's like, no, I think you don't know anything about biology is yeah. what I think. Mm-hmm. If you start to ask people um, who get kind of up in arms about this stuff, like, what what defines a woman? Often they'll say stuff where you're like, well, what about, you know, oh, well, it's having a uterus. Well, what if someone has a hysterectomy? Right. right. Still a woman? So is oh, grandma well, not yes. a woman anymore? Yeah. Or like, oh, it's having a menstrual cycle. So are, are children who haven't menstruated yet or people postmenopause, are they not, are they not women? Oh, well, it's, you know, X, Y, Z. Well, what if, you know, and you start to sort of poke some holes in it and mm-hmm. then it's all of a sudden it's like, oh, I can't, I, you know, it, then they just. Because they don't know talking. anything. Right, right. Right, and if you don't have a menstruation, well, you should see a doctor. You know, right. like then it's well, you're, you're something, right. there's something wrong with you, though. You know, that's not right. the most common thing, and it's like, well, but that's the thing. There's a diversity of right. people. Right. Like even if someone could get medical care and have this thing now that you say is a woman, yeah, it would still not be good enough for you. Is the point that most right. people are trying to make? Like you are putting these arbitrary rules around what is, like you don't get yeah. to decide for humanity right. <laughs> what counts as this gender. Right. Like it's not. It's not like the same difference between apples and bananas. It's like, what's the difference between a Honeycrisp apple and a Gala apple? Right. Yes. Like, they're right. both apples, but they yeah. have very different characteristics. Yeah. Absolutely. But nobody's going to say that this apple is more like a banana. Like, it's yeah, a good way to think <laughs> What are you, a banana like truther? It. This doesn't make any sense. <laughs> a banana. A banana truther. I like that. I like that a lot. You know, I, know. I think about, like, all of the gender-affirming care that cis people access all the time. Absolutely. Like, so, like, I have a seven-month-old baby at home, and so, like, in the process of being pregnant with him and having him, like, 
I access tons of gender affirming care as a cis woman, and like nobody bats an eye mm-hmm. about that. Um, and it's not even something I really thought about until I started started getting involved with with the trans community and doing more work in this area, um, and just realizing how much stuff we sort of take for granted, like cis people take for granted, as just like the normal way of doing things, as opposed to like how mad is this person would be if you messed up their pronouns? I was just talking with somebody about this the other day. You know, the idea of, like, if I were to go up to a cis person and use the wrong pronouns, they'd be like, excuse me, you know? Yeah. Like, well, yeah, it matters to you, right, that I use the correct pronouns for you. So do you think it might also matter for trans people or for non-binary people? I have a I have a really bad habit of calling everybody girl like when i'm drunk i call mm-hmm. everybody girl Fair. like especially like big tall dudes because it makes me laugh <laughs> yeah because they always get so angry about it and i did that to one of my friends my one of my friends got like kind of obscenely drunk off of like three beers and i was just like <laughs> cracking up and i was like girl you messy and he was like he just started laughing he's like yeah. you called me girl i was like yeah i don't know it's not it doesn't mean the same thing right now right. in this context right but it's also like i forgot where i was going with that it just doesn't like it's just a matter of being respectful of somebody else. Right. Mm-hmm. And also, nobody wants to outlaw 18-year-old girls getting breast augmentation surgery. Right. Right. Like. Yeah. And in some and there cases, are, there you can are get women them as that, minors. Yeah. And, and there, are, there yeah. are women that regret it. Like, oh, Cardi yeah. B has been on record saying, like, I wish I hadn't gotten all the surgeries that I got mm-hmm. when I was younger. I wish I would have waited longer. Oh, yeah. So does that make her part of this argument? Right. Because mm-hmm. she regretted a decision that she made when she was younger. Right. There's so many medical decisions that people, you know, that some proportion of people regret, and yet that doesn't mean that other people shouldn't have access to it. Mm-hmm. You know, like, I, I feel like I saw on Twitter recently somebody saying, a trans person talking about their their gender transition and also having, like, a knee surgery. And they were like, I actually regret the knee surgery, like, significantly I don't regret any of my transition right yeah and so the idea of like oh because somebody regretted this thing well that's evidence that nobody should ever get it like mm, or that's evidence that sometimes people make decisions that they regret because sometimes you don't have all the information or like you might have a bad outcome even if you knew what the risks were um but that doesn't mean that other people shouldn't have access to make those decisions for themselves you know and that we should support people regardless of whether they regret getting any kind of care. Yeah. Right. And I think partially it's, it, when it comes to in the United States, medicine is for profit or Mm -hmm. for profit. So like, I think regretting transition wouldn't be that big a deal if we had enough, if you didn't have to pay so much money to get it in the first place or have pays as much money to get it reversed Mm -hmm. or, you know, cause I think that comes down to it too is like, you know, I spent all this, you spend a lot of money. Right. And, that's part of the regret, I think. But, like, yeah. Yeah. I don't know. That That's part of it to me, I think. Because, like, I think a lot of people, you know, because if you get put on testosterone, for example, and you didn't want to be on testosterone, well, you grew facial hair. Now you have to get the laser surgery, the right. laser hair removal to get right. it removed again. You know, like, all of this costs money and we don't have the infrastructure in place. So now it's just costing you even more yes. money when, yeah, I think that's part of it, too. Um, yeah. And I think that plays into the importance of... I think people who don't know about these experiences who are making these kinds of assumptions about what transition is 
have this idea that someone just walks into an office one day and they're like, I want to have, you know, gender affirming surgery. And that some surgeon's like, cool, great. Let's put you on the, on the operating table tomorrow. Yeah. Like that's not how it happens. Mm -hmm. By far, people are waiting so long for care because they have to get a letter, you know, they Mm -hmm. have to raise the funds. They have to be able to save up time off work. Like, by far, people want care that they can't get as opposed to this, oh, you're just on a whim deciding to have this big surgery. Absolutely. And, I mean, just finding doctors that are willing to even treat sure. trans people for not yes. trans-related issues yes. is a time and a half. Yeah. Like, I've been told I have to drive to Dallas sometimes for certain kinds of care. And it's like, yeah. I'm not driving to Dallas. Dallas no. For anybody who's not in this area, yeah. like, it's five-hour drive yes. to Dallas, and there is nothing in between. Yeah. Yeah, it's just ridiculous. Like, people will not treat you, even if you're not asking for gender-affirming care. Like, you're literally doing anything right. else, and they'll make you go to a specialist. Like, yeah. and a lot of times there's, like, wait, the wait time to get into the specialist yes. is six months. Like, to yes. even get your first appointment is six yes. months. Like, it's not... Like you said, there's not it's not like you walk into an office and they just let you leave with any medication yeah. you want or sign you up for surgery the next day. That's not how it works. And people don't realize that. Like they don't know how hard it is yeah. to even find a doctor willing to do these things for you. Yes. You know, even if it's exactly what you want and you know it's what you want. Yeah. You know? They they have this um funny story they like to tell themselves where it's like, what if one day a man wakes up and decides he wants to be a woman and it's like and what if one day pigs fly? Right. Like, nobody wakes up one day and decides that they want to change their entire life to that extent. Right. Like, right. you might wake up one day and be like, I want to be a Buddhist. But you're not going to wake up one day and decide to transition that way. Like, it's always right. going to be, like, it's something that you've felt for a long time. And even if it isn't, it doesn't matter. Like, yeah, it's none of your business what somebody does with their body when they want to do it. But they always, like, what What if he just wants to start using the women's bathroom? Great. Put the toilet seat down. Like, yeah. <laughs> if you, if you, if you consider are a man it. I don't care. And you wake up one morning and you are so invested in using the women's bathroom that you go through, like, gender-affirming surgery or medications. Like, I'm not worried about you in my bathroom. I don't think right. that you're going to be, like, a threat to me. Like, that, you know, that's a big investment. And also, cis men can go, like, they could go into a woman, you know, if the, if the idea is that someone's going to be a threat or something. Yeah, I mean, I've, seen, I've yeah. seen cis men in the bathroom with, like, their little daughters. Yeah. It doesn't bother me. Yeah. The kids Like, I have pee, a stall. You know? Yeah. I don't even think there should, like, the bathroom thing is so ridiculous to me because it doesn't matter. I think there should be a bathroom for number one and a bathroom for number two. I like that idea. And then, like, maybe <laughs> then you don't have to be a around the number two like, smell. Like if you're gonna for... throw up. Yeah. Oh, <laughs> I lo- I like that. I like that. I do feel badly for anyone who has to use a men's bathroom because because they have urinals without. There's no. Like, I there's don't know, no, no there's barriers. Store. Yeah. yeah. Right. That to me is like why, why would anyone at any? I don't care if you're cis or trans. I, I don't want to be peeing. Yeah, around I don't want other people, people to see my genitals. Yeah. Like yes. in general, like why <laughs> can't like, they be stalls? You know. Um, but that's that's yeah. just a general and, like, design I do, flaw. I knew I know cis dudes that like will use the stall because yeah. they don't like. And they like to sit down. They're like, I don't know. I'm lazy. I don't want to stand up. Yeah. It's probably cleaner. I would right. Have, well, maybe. Not, I don't know. It's probably done somewhere. I was going to say, it's probably. It, it's, a, it's a big 50-50. Yeah. <laughs> it's a big 50-50 in any men's room. Yeah. That's fair. That I mean, I've fair. used I've used a lot of, like, men's bathrooms just because I don't want to wait in line and I have to yeah. pee. Like. Yeah. 
I gotta pee, I gotta pee. I don't really right? care. It doesn't matter. Yeah. No. <laughs> it is funny, though, because it's like, usually women don't care because they're just like, yeah, I know, there's a long line. Yeah. They don't, they don't look twice, but it's usually men that'll be like, did I yeah. come into the wrong? No, I'm wrong. It's okay. I yeah. just have to pee. I don't want to wait. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I'll go. I, I will only do that in, in LGBT bars or LGBT yeah. spaces. I'll only do that there. But yeah. um, interestingly, I find in, in those spaces, the men's room never has a line. There's never a line yeah. in the men's room. If, if you know, you yeah. know, I guess. Right. Interesting. <laughs> um, but back to the thing at hand. What's the next question I had here? Oh, I feel like we've talked me. about... I looked, I looked at them and I thought through my answers, but I don't have them in front of me. Because so. we've talked about transitioning socially and medically and how that yeah. is, in fact, helpful. And, cha- and yes. So we'll go on to, um, you know, in your research, you talked about, like, internal versus external transphobia yeah. and, like, what... What is the difference as far as the definition? Again, I think I know, but just yeah, to be clear yeah, about yeah. it. Yeah, for sure. So there's a there's a theory called minority stress theory, which is it predates focus on trans issues specifically. Um, but it's sort of a broad theory that basically says if you are a part of a minoritized group, you experience... Uh, you're likely to experience stressors related to that part of your identity, mm-hmm. and those stressors can then have negative effects on your physical health and your mental health. So right. this has been studied in relation to, like, racial minorities, ethnic minorities, um, cis women relative to cis men, um, queer folks, and then more recently kind of expanding it to folks that are trans or non-binary. And the, the way that the theory is kind of set up is – there's two sort of big categories of these stressors. One is the sort of external stressors. So mm-hmm. I think about these as being stressors related to other people. So somebody is misgendering you, someone's discriminating against you, or you know, you're being victimized or you're being rejected um, on the basis of of in this case, gender identity. That can also, I think, include more structural things like um you know, government policies and stuff Mm -hmm. like that, those aren't as um, well studied in Mm -hmm. relation to health, but we certainly know, like, that, you know, political discussions, protections against discrimination, like, all of those things have downstream effects on health. Um, And then the internal piece is essentially what all of those external experiences do to a person in terms of their emotional experiences. So internalized transphobia being, you know, this kind of, I believe that I'm not as good as other people because I'm trans or non-binary, or, you know, I believe that trans people are sick or, you know, any of those kinds of beliefs. Sometimes we'll talk about like negative expectations, like other people treat you poorly. And so then you expect that in future situations, people are going to treat you poorly. Right. So even if you go and people are nice, there's always this kind of, like, behind the scenes, like, I'm waiting for the other shoe to drop. I'm waiting for somebody to say something. I'm waiting for somebody to treat me badly. Yeah. Um, or even not knowing, like, somebody treats you badly and you have that question in your head, are they treating me badly because they're just kind of a jerk? Mm-hmm. Or are they treating me badly because... Uh, of my gender, mm-hmm. right? And so there's that kind of more internal piece that doesn't require somebody to, like, say I'm 
you know, I'm not going to serve you because you're trans, but that's like that kind of day-to-day internal experience. And in general, research says that all of those experiences are like not good for your mental health, right? Right. Unsurprisingly. Mm -hmm. Yeah, absolutely. Um, It's interesting to hear you think like the, the one where you're like, oh, is someone going to treat me badly because Mm -hmm. I'm trans? That one, that one's a big one for me. I always am like, because I don't let that stop me. I'm, mm-hmm. I'm very open with my pronouns. I tell my when I I don't teach right now, but when I do teach, I tell my students my pronouns and things yeah. like that. And I've I've off that's been a that's a stressor when I teach because I'm yeah. like you know I've had students that like are upset with me for grading, for example. Yeah. But then I will think, well, they've never asked me a question. Are they less likely to ask me a question because I use right. these pronouns? Like, are they not wanting to interact with me yeah. because of that? Or you know, like those kinds of things or like professors or anything yeah. that you do, you always think, is this because I did this? Is right. this because I, I am so open with my pronouns? Mm-hmm. Cause I could easily just be like, yeah, she, her, whatever, not mm-hmm. going to talk about it, not going to do anything, which most of the time I just like let people misgender me. I tell them my pronouns. If mm-hmm. they're not going to gender me correctly, then I just, I don't, yeah, I don't push it. Cause I just don't have the mental energy. For right. That. Cause that's like a big, like, am I going to say something? Am I not going to say something? Like, right. you know, all of that, it takes up a lot of your just cognitive effort, mm-hmm. right. That you could be spent doing like your chemistry stuff. Right. Right. It's, you know. it's this thing, like this kind of constant level of stress that mm-hmm. cis people don't experience that even something like white people don't experience. Right. Like, is it, am I being discriminated against for being a person of color or is right. it because I'm queer or is it like, and it's something like, unless you are, you are in one of these minority groups, you will never understand the constant stress of that and the cortisol, like the cortisol chemical buildup in yeah. your body. Cause your body doesn't know the difference between I'm stressed because I perceive a threat and I'm stressed because there is a threat. Right. Oh yeah. Right. So it's the same, yeah. you're going to have the same amount of like tension yeah. that you hold in your back all the time because yeah. you're just like. Anything can happen. Yes. Because I've tried to explain to, like, people before, like, I don't feel safe in Lubbock. And they don't get it. Because they're like, oh, you know, the crime rate in Lubbock is very low. And first of all, that is a lie. (laughs) They just don't have a high conviction rate. (laughs) Okay? Like, there's many cases where they were like, "Mm, we're just going to not press charges. (laughs) We're going to rule this an accident. You know, like, there are absolutely cases here and uh of of violence towards people and you know um was it last year or the year before a trans person was murdered that was this year yeah that was this, this yeah. Was, yeah that was this year last trans day of remembrance and yeah. this trans when day I, of remembrance. yes and i have like unfortunately i have a lot of cis friends i'm just kidding mm-hmm. um i have a lot of cis friends that do like they do believe in their hearts that they are allies yeah. but when i tell them about how it's difficult sometimes, like even for my wife who doesn't like, my wife isn't really, she, her, they, them, he, him, it doesn't matter as long as you're mm-hmm. being respectful, as long as you're not being ugly. Sure. But I was like, you guys don't understand the way people look at her just for not presenting the way that they want her to. Mm-hmm. And yeah. I see it all the time because I'm always with her and I'm always like, I always yeah. have that heightened kind of sense of like, just being on the lookout. Like I remember yeah. we were just driving through Arizona, we stopped at this gas station and I walk in and I'm, like, like straight passing or whatever, right? Like, so people don't know when they look at me what's going on, which is fine. I kind of blend in. And I go in, and there's all this, like, Trump stuff, all this, like, mm-hmm. right-winger stuff, all this, my pronouns, our patriot, blah, blah, mm-hmm. like, all this weird stuff. And I told my – I had to tell my wife, I was like, I know you have to go to the bathroom, but I don't think you should come in here. 
Yeah. Yeah. I think we're going to have to, like, you're just going to have to wait or we can go on the side of the road. And I don't think people that don't experience that have any idea what that feels like just to be unsafe in who you are for no reason. It's not like you're going anywhere that's necessarily more dangerous than the other. It's just this kind of, it's like an instinct that you have to to protect yourself. Of course. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And when it comes to like, in my case, when it comes to like, you know, regen, you know, how do I put this? Like people will, you'll get my pronouns wrong. And people have asked me before, oh, well, you're not one of those trans people that get mad when you, when someone gets your pronouns wrong, are you? And I'm like, oh no, I don't get mad. I just know you don't give a shit about me. Right. I just think less of you as a person. Yeah. Like I just, I know you're not a safe person. Like that's period. Like I don't put this energy into hating you. In fact, I... I believe in the inherent worth and dignity of every person. I don't even necessarily think yeah. you're a bad person, you know, depending just for misgendering right. me. I was like, you might still be a bad person. You <laughs> might be a bad person, but for a different reason. <laughs> Asking the ask the misgendering versus like the oh, you're not going to get mad at me for misgendering. I feel like that to me signals that yes. you're a bad person. <laughs> right, right, right. By asking that question, now, now I'm like, you're. Uh, I wouldn't have been mad before. Yeah. But now, but just in general, I just like I don't. I don't feel like you deserve my energy. You don't deserve yeah. my energy to be mad at you. You know, my prof- <laughs> people have like told me before that I don't have much of a temper, right? And yeah. it's like, well, that's because you don't deserve my energy. <laughs> right, right. Um, yeah. Which is something I've had to go through in my own therapy. Like, right. that was like, part of my therapy. I'm sleepy right now. <laughs> <laughs> I've got, I've got better things. I've got chemistry to do. Okay. <laughs> yeah. Well, and that's that. Like, you know, because I, I think a lot about mentoring, like that's a big part of why I wanted to be in this career was to be working with grad students and undergrads and mentoring folks. And I, I want to be building a pipeline where we have more queer and trans folks in the sciences. Right. Um, and like, I'm a cis straight lady. So I'm like, I'm trying to do my best. I'm going to mess stuff up, but I want there to be a situation where there's enough trans and queer folks doing this work that I can be like, I I shouldn't be doing this work. And unfortunately in the field, like we have so many folks that, that either don't see that those career options or end up kind of starting and then leaving because of this just added, these added stressors of like, if you're a cis, straight, white, you know, person with a lot of privileges, you can sort of just go do your grad school stuff. Right. Right. Um, but then when you've got all these other experiences, you know, you're trying to navigate who in the department is safe for me to talk to. Like, mm-hmm. am I safe in my physical living space? Um, it's just this constant extra effort um, or like trying to access care, especially right. in a place where maybe we don't, ha- you know, there's no like gender clinic in Lubbock. Right? right. You don't just Google gender affirming care and get like, here's the place you go. Right. Um I used to live in Pittsburgh before I moved here, and they had a adolescent, like a clinic for adolescents and young adults that was specifically around access to gender affirming care. Mm-hmm. Everybody there was like extremely well trained. You knew that they were going to get your pronouns right. You knew that they were going to have like support for your family. They, you knew that the the staff were going to be able to address like how do hormones or puberty blockers interact with birth control or interact with like other medications? Like they have all these specialty providers in one place, a place like Lubbock. If you want access to care, like you got to do a lot of legwork Mm -hmm. and potentially go somewhere five to six hours away. Yeah. Um, Absolutely. Yeah. 
And you, you do see a lot of people, like, on on social media ask, like, on, you know, specific Facebook groups or, like, on Reddit or stuff, like, are there caregivers that are used to dealing with these kinds of people, like, people mm-hmm. like me? Yeah. Because it is something, like, I mean, just as a as a... As a woman, I don't want to go to a male gynecologist. And there are some women yeah. that are comfortable with that, but I'm not. Yeah. And it's the same, like, other people are going to have that same feeling of, like, yeah. finding. It's the same thing with, like, therapists. It's like you yeah. want to find somebody that, you know, you feel comfortable with. And right. it's, we don't have those resources, yeah. unfortunately. Yeah. And that's why, like, I think certainly, at least in psychology, graduate training, we're having a lot of conversations about, like, how can we get how can we make sure that we're training people to provide services who are who look like and have the experiences of the people they're trying to serve right, right. because if if we're only graduating psychologists who are like white and hetero and cis then when they go out into communities and try to do the try to actually provide care our our providers don't look like the people they're trying to serve they don't have mm-hmm. those experiences and so you're going to have people who say, well, I don't want to go to, you know, if I'm, if I'm a black kid, I don't want to go to like this old white guy therapist, you know, he's not going to understand my experiences. Mm -hmm. And it's just, and also because the field isn't, you know, as inclusive as it should be, there's all of these obstacles to going through that training if you're a person from a minoritized background, right? And especially in a place like Lubbock where you might not have, like, a huge community outside of your program to draw from. Like, most of, you know, my guess is, at least in our department, most of our grad students are not from Lubbock Mm -hmm. originally. So you're moving to a place for graduate school, you're trying to find your community, and in many cases there's just not a huge community. Oh, Um, yeah. That's something that I experienced coming here. Like, the the queer community is not very cohesive at least like it's not that it's not big like there's plenty of people yeah they just don't like it in where i'm from there is one gay bar and everybody goes to the same you know where to go (laughs) you know and and i it feels like the it felt like there was a lot more cohesion than there is in lubbock and i don't know why that is so i don't know you might have more insight lubbock has a a long history of discrimination not just against um queer people but also against like different races mm-hmm. so it's like it's why we have east lubbock yeah yeah there's it's almost like this is what, why we have east lubbock and then we have like north lubbock right like the barrio and it's kind of the same way so like the i feel like the gay guys kind of keep to themselves and the gay women keep to themselves and mm-hmm. then neither community really is that like inclusive to the other part of the spectrum right like because there are a lot of lesbians like even in this community i've I've known some that are, like, super turfy. They're like, mm-hmm. oh, just because, oh, you can't come and hit on lesbians anymore because you transition. It's like, don't, why are you being like this? Like, this person needs community, and you know what that feels like. You know on a deep level what it feels like to not belong, and you're going to push that feeling on somebody else? Oh, yeah. yeah, yeah. I think a lot of our research is limited in that way, too, because there's there's this tendency for researchers to want to like put people into groups right Mm -hmm. and so often you'll see research that's like we did we compared lgbtq plus people to everybody else and sort of treating those experiences as if they're the same when Mm -hmm. we realize that like what your community looks like what your access to social support looks like is very very different 
for, you know, a cis lesbian woman, a cis gay man compared to someone who's bi, compared to someone who's pan, compared to someone who's trans, compared to, like, those experiences aren't identical. Not that one is, like, easier or harder inherently, but they're just different. Right. Um, And so the idea of, like, oh, you know, we can talk about, like, the queer community or uh, in the trans community as one entity, like those are communities, plural, separate. Um, And I imagine in a place like Lubbock, because it doesn't necessarily feel like a super woke, like it might be harder to find those communities if, if there's not places, physical spaces that advertise and can say like, come here. right? Right. If you don't feel like that's a safe option. We've, we don't have a, a third place, right? So, like, mm-hmm. there's this theory, and I don't remember who whose it is, but it's, like, we used to have these third places, parks. Some people would use, like, churches. Some people use, like, uh, town halls. Mm-hmm. We don't have those. Yeah. We don't have one specifically for all, like, the all-encompassing, mm-hmm. quote-unquote, queer community. Mm-hmm. Like, you might hang out at home. You might be friends with your coworkers. But there's not one place we all go to be together. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Like, you, the you closest feel we it. have is, like, Luxor, but it's still, like, there's too many straight people at Luxor sometimes. <laughs> it's, like, I don't know. Then Luxor's not a gay bar. Right. They do drag, but they are not a gay bar. Right. Like, right. you go there, and it's, like, I went there, because I was told Luxor is the gay bar. Yeah. So when I got here, I went to Luxor, and the night I went, it was Latin night, which was fun. I had a good time, but that's not a gay bar. Right. Gay bars are gay bars every time you're open. Right. Like, this is just a bar that has drag right. shows, and there's yeah. a big difference, and I don't oh, think yeah. people get it here, or at least I've talked to people, and like, no, Luxor is not a gay bar. Yeah. <laughs> like, I don't know. And, like, it's so loud in there. You can't sit there and have a conversation. Yeah. It's a club, yeah. and, like, yeah, it's not a place that community is built in any right. kind of way. You know, right. the closest I've ever felt that way was, like, at Pride, because, like, people can walk yeah. around and mingle, Yeah, you know, um, which I liked Pride. Pride was a fun time. <laughs> um, and then that was at, what was the other one? I forget the other bar. That's rewind? Rewind, yeah. Mm-hmm. That one's better. But I've also been there on a night and there was not another human being in the bar, so I don't know <laughs> yeah. what was going on there. I don't know it's, if I'm just old and going to the no, bars too early now. <laughs> it's because it used to be um, Clusos and there was a lot of like shootings and stuff at Clusos. Oh, okay. It's a well, little A little bit of Lubbock history. There you go. That's yeah. why I was just... Yeah. I think it's honestly probably safer now that it is, like people think of it as a gay bar. It's at least safe for, like, safe against that kind of gun violence that they were having. But mm, it's still, gotcha. like, I mean, I was, like, during Pride, I'm always a little hyper vigilant. Oh, yeah. yeah. Especially in a place like Lubbock. Mm-hmm. Like, I was like, well, we're close enough to the back. Like, when we were, I was like, we're close enough to the back door. Hopefully, they're coming in. They're not coming in through that way. We can kind of squeeze our way past there. We can kind of crouch. On, like, yeah. I was thinking of all these things in my head. And it's like, God, people don't have to do this. Yeah. It must be so, like, how much free time do you have when you're not thinking about if somebody comes in here to target my community, how can I get out of here? Yeah, absolutely. Because, like, I've had the same thoughts of, like, well, if this happened, what would I do? Yeah. Mm -hmm. And, like, for a lot of people, that's, like, a literal hypothetical, right? Like, like, you really don't think think about it. Like, they're just, like, and, like, I find a lot of people who are not actually worried about it, they have, like, a fantasy that they're going to save the day. Right. Yeah. And I never I'm like, think that. I'm just no. like, how do I get out? Exactly. It's like, if you actually are afraid of this, you're you're thinking of your escape plan. Yeah. You're like, thinking, how, do, how I... do I get my people out of yeah. here safely and alive? Right. You don't think, oh, I'm going to run up to the gunman and punch them. No. Right. 
Like, no. I'm not trying to be a martyr. I'm trying to survive, okay? Yeah. Yeah. And it's just a very different experience, I feel like, when you are not actually afraid. Or you're in this really hypothetical. (laughs) Yeah. But yeah. Um, And so when it comes to, like, tracking risk over time, how is that done? I guess first we should go into, like, how does this external and internal transphobia um, affect risks of self-harm and suicide? I guess that's more of the natural next question. Yeah. So... A lot of the research so far uses basically asking people, like, in general, how do you feel or in your lifetime, what has happened to you? And then Mm -hmm. we look at, like, how these things are correlated with each other. So there's good data that says, like, if if I ask you a bunch of questions that are sort of getting at internalized transphobia, you know, I'm asking you to rate these things on a scale or whatever. And then I ask you about, have you ever struggled with self-injury or suicidal thoughts or suicide? We've got plenty of data that shows that those things go together, right? The mm-hmm. more you, re- the more internalized transphobia you report, the more likely you are to report histories of self injury and suicide. Same with things like discrimination, victimization, right? Like if I ask you in your whole life, how often have these things happened, or have these things happened, yes or no, they're going to be related to each other. What gets tricky with that is you don't know like what came first, and you can't prove that one thing caused the other thing. Right. So it could be, you know, that A happened before B, B happened before A, or, like, both A and B happened because of some other third thing, C. Mm-hmm. Um, and so that's what really motivated me to do this kind of tracking over time piece because we can actually say this thing happened first and then this other thing happened. Right. And that doesn't necessarily mean that one caused the other, but it at least is like a, it's better scientific evidence. Right. Right. It's stronger. Right. Yeah. It's stronger. I can't prove it. Um, I can't prove that one thing caused the other, but I can at least say, oh, this thing happened first and then this other thing happened. Um, and so that's kind of what we were looking at with the project. Um, that we're just wrapping up and kind of writing. Well, we wrapped up data collection. We're working on, like, the writing it up for scientific journals piece, which always takes a million years. (laughs) (laughs) It always takes way longer than I anticipated. But that's what we were really looking at, was trying trying to show that these things actually do have an effect on, like, suicidal thoughts over time. And my hope is that then like, the results can then be useful for people who are actually trying to advocate for, like, change, you know? Um, Because I think about this a lot. Like, what can I do as a scientist, right? Um, Like, in my personal life, I can protest and I can donate and I can, like, you know, write my legislators. Um, Although, you know, being in Lubbock in Texas, I don't know that it's going to do a lot to write our current legislators. Um, I think of like, okay, I'm trained as a scientist. So in my professional life, what can I do to like use science in a way that is going to be useful, right? Mm -hmm. As opposed to just like, oh, I wrote a paper and two people are going to read it. Which is why it's super cool that we get to talk about this on a podcast. (laughs) So so often it's like, oh, I wrote a paper and like two people read it and that's as far as it goes. Right. Uh, I feel you. I, I, um, I also feel that way sometimes where I'm like, you know, I'm a chemist, right? So, like, I'm doing chemistry stuff, yeah. and 
there's not a lot of like direct like because people ask me like oh well why do you research that and like part of me is just like well it's cool right <laughs> that's an okay reason <laughs> right and it is an okay yeah. reason because I do a lot of basic science research yeah. right that's just like because we don't know a lot about actinides and lanthanides so that's what yeah. my research is in um but I don't have that component of like well this affects your life in this way and I do yeah. feel like that I I miss that, and that's kind of why I want to do this podcast. Yeah. Um, and, like, other outreach stuff I do, because I, I really love teaching and getting yeah. people involved. And, you know, like how you were saying, getting people to be in psychology, I, I feel yeah. the same way about getting people into chemistry. Because, yeah. like, in a lot of ways, chemistry is very neutral to queer people. Yeah. Like, we don't talk – there's not a lot of external like – a lot of external things, you know. Like, yeah. sometimes I get misgendered. But, like, on the whole, like, people are pretty nice, you know. Yeah. But at the same time, there is a lot of – other things like money and yeah. just the getting education and having access yes. to education and like as a first gener- generation college student I very much feel that like I know yeah. what it's like yeah yeah and so yeah even though this is like a chemistry podcast I, I'm really happy that you're on here too to like talk yeah. about this because like at least, at least this is my little part of trying to yeah. bring well, bring this into people's attentions you know like and, I said I can't stop other people from hurting us but maybe we can help yeah. people that are hurting to get some help and one of the things that I think is really cool is that there's actually research showing that like the more diverse role models people see in education mm-hmm. like the more then the more people persist in education, right? right? So it's been more studied in terms of, like, cis women, cis men, or, or in terms of um, uh, minor, people from minoritized racial backgrounds, but people of color. Um, but, like, we know that just, like, having, like, a chemistry instructor who says, oh, my pronouns are they, them, mm-hmm. like, that in and of itself shows people in your classes, hey, there's room in chemistry for me if I use they, them pronouns or right. for my friend, you know. So, and we know that that's true for cis women faculty in STEM. We know that that's true for, like, seeing black faculty or Latinx faculty. Like, we know that that is the case that then black or Latinx or cis women students are more likely to persist in those fields. Right. Um, so. Yeah, absolutely. Because there's a there's a project that's I forget who does it, but someone does a um, what does a scientist look like, mm-hmm. and she's been doing it for years. Yeah, you know. And so when she was first started the project, mm-hmm. what a scientist looked like was a white man in a lab yeah. coat, right? But now yeah. kids are starting to draw other people as scientists. You know, yeah. like you get you still get the same white men, you know, yeah. but like that you get a lot more people that will draw more diverse. Yeah. Which is so exciting. I know. I'm like, oh, yes, my little kids. Yes. Yes. Because, <laughs> yes, like, and then um, there's a cute thing that you can do, like, an outreach thing that people do that you bring, like, little lab coats and goggles oh. and stuff so they can, like, take their little pictures as little scientists. Oh, super cute. And so then they can physically see themselves as a scientist. Yes. It's so good. It's so good for that. It's, ah, I love it. And it's also just adorable. <laughs> yes. It's amazing <laughs> with kids, like... If they, if when kids don't have the baggage that we adults have, they're just so much more accepting of stuff. I think Mm -hmm. about this with masks, right? So, like, I'm high risk, my husband's high risk, so we're still masking, even though in Lubbock, I feel like that all kind of ended a long time ago. Um, But, like, you'll see little kids wearing masks, like in the airport, and they just, it's, because they were just told, like, yeah, we, we're going outside. Like, you put on your shoes, you put on your mask. Oh, okay. Mm-hmm. Obviously not when they're, like, babies. I'm talking, like, you know, four or five, whatever. And in the same airport, you've got, like, 
the grown-ups who are like, they've got their mask on their chin, you know, yeah. they like take it off to talk to someone. I'm like, that's <laughs> not how it works. Yeah. This is not useful for you. You know, where it's, if you have to adjust where your normal was this one way and now you have to think about something differently, it feels so much harder than if you just kind of grow up with, yeah, this is what we do. Mm-hmm. I think about it with they, them pronouns, right? Trying to explain this to my older family members. Oh, yeah. Mind blown, right? It's like, <laughs> what do you mean? I'm like, well... You actually use they, them pronouns, singular they, them pronouns all the time. Mm-hmm. Um, you just don't think about it, you know. But, like, having to do the shift takes people longer versus, oh, yeah. you know, when I'm working with undergrads now, we're like, yeah, okay, cool. Mm-hmm. No big deal. I can handle that. <laughs> I also, I love that thing where people are like, well, if my kid sees two men together kissing in the store, what am I supposed to tell them? That they're kissing, that they're in love. I don't know. The yeah. same thing that you tell them when straight people are, like. Yeah. Kids believe in the tooth, like the tooth fairy and (laughs) Santa Claus. You lie to them about that stuff all their lives, and you can't just tell the truth about like it's not my fault. You don't want to talk to your ugly, annoying kid. Yes, like if you have a kid, your job is. Do you know how easy it is to explain it to them? Yeah, it's really not. Do you know what they think drag queens are? Princesses, because that's what they look like. Mm -hmm. I mean, yeah, like it's as close as they can get to an actual Disney princess. Yes, Yes. of course they're gonna love them. They're covered in glitter. Right. I think about like the drag queen story hours, and people are like, "Oh, this is like sexualized." I'm like. Have you drag queens are gorgeous. Drag and like, queens are only really sexualized kid, because you men consistently sexualize women. Right. So they think a man dressing as a woman is inherently sexual because right. they yes. think a woman is inherently sexual. Right. That's, as opposed to just, oh, it's like someone wearing a pretty dress. Yeah. This yeah. is awesome. Absolutely. So just dress up. Speaking That's of drag nice. drag story hours, the one that I don't know if y'all saw this in the news like a few years ago, but they're my my like you'll see little kids wearing masks like in the airport. And they just it's because they were just told, like, yeah, we, we're going outside. Like, you put on your shoes, you put on your mask. Oh, okay. Mm-hmm. Obviously not when they're, like, babies. I'm talking, like, you know, four or five, whatever. And in the same airport, you've got, like, the grown-ups who are, like, they've got their mask on their chin, you know. Yeah. They, like, take it off to talk to someone. I'm like, that's <laughs> not how it works. Yeah. This is not useful for you. You know, where it's, if you have to adjust where your normal was this one way, and now you have to think about something differently, it feels so much harder than if you just kind of grow up with, yeah, this is what we do. Mm-hmm. I think about it with they, them pronouns, right? Trying to explain this to my older family members. Oh, yeah. Mind blown, right? It's like, <laughs> what do you mean? I'm like, well... You actually use they, them pronouns, singular they, them pronouns all the time. Mm-hmm. Um, you just don't think about it, you know. But, like, having to do the shift takes people longer versus, oh, yeah. you know, when I'm working with undergrads now, we're like, yeah, okay, cool. Mm-hmm. Not a big deal. I can handle that. <laughs> I also, I love that thing where people are like, well, if my kid sees two men together kissing in the store, what am I supposed to tell them? That they're kissing, that they're in love. I don't know. The yeah. same thing that you tell them when straight people are, like. Yeah. Kids believe in the tooth, like the tooth fairy and <laughs> yeah. Santa Claus. You lie to them about that stuff all their lives, yes. and you can't just yes. tell the truth about like it's not my fault. You don't want to talk to your ugly, annoying kid. Yes, like if like, you have a kid, your job is. Do you know how easy gonna, it is to yeah. explain it to them? Yeah, it's really not. Do that you know what they think drag queens are? Princesses, because that's what they right? look like. Mm-hmm. I mean, yeah, like it's as close as they can get to an actual Disney princess. Yes, yes. of course they're gonna love them. They're covered in glitter. Right. Mm-hmm. right. I think about like the drag queen story hours, and people are like, "Oh, this is like sexualized." I'm like, "Have you? Drag queens are gorgeous. Drag and, like, queens are only really sexualized kid, because you men consistently sexualize women. Right. So they think a man dressing as a woman is inherently sexual because right. they yes. think a woman is inherently sexual. Right. That's, as opposed to just, oh, it's like someone wearing a pretty dress. Yeah. This yeah. is awesome. 
Absolutely. Just dress up. Speaking of drag drag story hours, the one that, I don't know if y'all saw this in the news like a few years ago, but my my last college town made the news because we did drag queen story hour and every protester in the state of Tennessee came out and they like threatened to burn down the public library. So ridiculous. I had to stand guard outside the door. So, you like, FYI, like, that's... I, I bet they didn't even know there was a public library. Like, they, there's no way they knew where the public library was before they decided to go protest. Like, they had to Google that for real. Yeah. Like, don't yeah. you just have Well, they weren't even from do. the do county. Do you even know how to read? They, like, yeah. they were not from that county. Like, they yeah. drove across oh, yeah. the state to come there. You know, like, I'm sure some yeah. people were from that county, but, yeah. like, we were... There's a few big a lot um, evangelical like, preachers in Tennessee, and they drove yeah. out there from wherever they were from to come protest our little library who was really doing nothing. So we weird. really were not. We Ugh. had like 10 kids, you know, like it really if, wasn't a big if deal. If there was something that I really hated happening, the protest would have to be in my town. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it'd have to be something pretty big for me to drive like, across the state. Like yeah. if I'm going to drive across the state, it's because I want to go to a concert. Like I'm not trying to go, I don't need to drive across the street to yell at somebody about something yeah. I don't agree with. Like I'll just go into the local bar and find someone. That is one like... Um, cultural difference i find with tennessee versus texas is mm. our pride did not have protesters here in lubbock when i went last mm-hmm. year like not, not like people holding sign right. protesters we had that one guy there's always there's the, one there's guy? always there's, there's, a, there's guy always a priest yeah, yeah. there's like, always okay, a priest yeah. and like his sad sad wife okay but we we got you get one okay yeah. maybe but like in in tennessee there is always a protester section that we that we <laughs> section <laughs> off with a off. fence oh god it's got like a fence that's like it's like That's they're caged funny. animals. Yeah. Oh my gosh. <laughs> I mean, and are they not? Are you not a caged animal when you can't like, accept that other people? There's, there's always live like a counter, a counter crowd. Like yeah. there's two crowds yelling at each other. Like it's if you don't, if you don't like pride, don't go to pride. Right? Yeah. Right. Like it's not like pride takes over the entire city and you can't leave yeah. your house without seeing rainbow flags. Like if you right. don't want to go, don't go. Guess what? If you're a homophobe, you're not invited. There you go. Yeah. Can explain this to you differently. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's just very interesting because I'm I'm always waiting for a protester and then they never yeah. show up. <laughs> oh, it's always the one guy with the with his signs. It's he, the same guy. Uh, every time he gives me a pamphlet, I'm like, oh my god, I don't know how to read. I'm sorry. I have to <laughs> just waste his time. Be like, can you read it to me? I need I need you to spend I can't the next read, I'm hour. Gay. Just <laughs> oh. Uh, one of my jokes for my stand-up set now is going to be, well, I, I started a podcast, so I lost my ability to read because, like, everyone <laughs> everyone knows that a podcaster is scary. <laughs> I think I was going to – I was oh adding gosh. that one to my set. I'm excited. <laughs> I feel like there's some way to tie in the um, Leah Michelle like, not reading yeah. meme, I, I, which I don't know I, anything about except that it is a, a – I don't know this meme. Leah Michelle <laughs> – um, for those of you who don't know, Leah Michelle, this is your pop culture corner with Selena. Uh, she is the lead singer and uh, lead character in Glee. She's the most annoying oh. human being to ever exist on TV. She cries like every ten minutes for something stupid. The only re- like the only episode that I accepted that she was crying was when her boyfriend died. But I guess she she's very annoying. But there's a whole loud. there's a whole theory where like she never learned how to read, so the director like the writer would go over the lines with her so she would just memorize it hmm. and that's why she yeah like, i've seen these memes now that you say yeah. that i've seen and these a lot memes, of her but... like captions and stuff on instagram are just like emojis really hmm I'm you would sure think she'd she have know. an assistant i'm sure she does know how to read but <laughs> yeah, it's funny it's to say those, that like, she doesn't yeah. like not but, to be not to like punch down at people who are illiterate but also I you can mean, punch we'll up that, like, out. a famous celebrity yeah. who has a lot of money. Like, right? you have the resources to learn how to read. Yeah, to get back on topic, <laughs> that's not our corner. 
But yeah, so you're tracking risk over time. And so what factors did you identify that like built up resilience and reduced risks of self-harm yeah. and suicide? Let's go to there. That is something I'm super excited about because I feel like a lot of times in this research, there's focus on like all the bad stuff, right? right. Which is fair. Like I study self-injury and suicide. Usually I'm studying bad stuff. Um and often when we think about, like, what's protective, we just think about not having the bad stuff. Like, right. okay, it's protective to not experience discrimination. It's protective to not have internalized transphobia. Sure. Um, but, like, the resilience piece is something that I get really excited about. So in this, like, minority stress and resilience theory, um, they kind of talk about two areas of resilience. So identity pride, like— just essentially, like, feeling pride in one's gender, mm-hmm. um, as well as, like, com- that community connectedness piece, feeling connected to other people. Um, e- in some cases, thinking about it, like, other people that share your same gender identity, but also more broadly, like, members of the trans community, whether it's right. necessarily the same identity. Um, and we did find that folks, when they reported more identity pride and more feeling connected to their community that happened ahead of days where folks had lower rates of like suicidal thoughts. Mm -hmm. Um, So in the study we did, we recruited specifically trans adults with recent suicidal thoughts because that's what we were interested in understanding. Um, So I always have the caveat of like, that's not everybody. Like not every trans person is having suicidal thoughts every day, but in our sample that was happening a lot. Um, And so we asked people kind of at the start of every day, like, how do you feel about your identity? How do you feel about how connected you are to your community? And when people said that that was happening more often or or more to a greater extent, then they felt less suicidal later that day, Hmm. which is really cool because I feel like that gives us a psychologist a direction to, like, work with people, um, not only about addressing things like internalized transphobia, but also kind of building up, like, some of those things. And also it has implications for communities, right? Like, it's one thing to say to an individual, connect with your community, but if that community doesn't exist, you can't connect with it. So (laughs) it becomes, you know, a question of how can we build those communities, whether they're in a physical space, whether they're online, Mm -hmm. both all of the above. Like, I think the internet has a lot of really valuable potential for people to build those connections that aren't necessarily in the same space. But also we know that it's not the same. You Mm -hmm. know, there's there's a different experience being in an online Zoom room with other trans and non-binary folks versus, like, being able to go out to a bar or a club and know that you feel safe in your community. Mm -hmm. Those are both important but different. Yeah, absolutely. Because I think the internet spaces are so good especially for people who don't have that control to, like, go somewhere. Yeah. Because, I mean, even just, you know, from Tennessee, a lot of people lived in really rural areas. They didn't yeah. have the ability to drive all the way to Nashville or wherever it was their right. closest queer club. Yeah. You know, so those internet spaces can be a lifeline for people that are isolated for various reasons, you know? Yeah. Um, and kids, I yeah. think, too. Like, if you're not out to your family or you're out to your family and they are not supportive mm-hmm. or you're in a school environment where you can't be out, like, the ability to connect with other people in a way that feels safer maybe than your physical space is valuable. Now, that being said, like, obviously the internet there's lots of possibilities for unsafe spaces. Yeah. Um, but, you know, I think I think it 
can have a lot of positive potential, even though there are risks involved. Mm -hmm. Yeah, you just have to be very careful that who you're interacting with on the internet is not an unsafe person. Mm -hmm. And that's really hard to figure out sometimes. Yeah. Um, And it is really risky for children. And really, that's why especially kids need in-person, safe in-person places to go. Because if you have a school club that is run by a teacher that is a safe person, like that would be, is so much better than having them risk finding strangers on the internet to talk to, you know? Cause like, that's part of the thing is like, people don't understand is like, I being a out trans adult, like part of it is like, yes, I'm a trans adult and I, you know what I mean? Like showing kids that like, that you exist. There are queer adults that are, that were in your place, Yes, you know, and you have, you know, you might not have control right now. Yeah. But, like, because that's why I say, that's why I always try to tell this to, like, especially, I've talked to some kids that are, like, oh, I just, I hate my family, like, they're so mean or whatever, you know, like, things happen, you know, and I'm, like, as soon as you're 18, it's your control. You should leave your hometown. Yeah. Go, go see what else is in the world, you know, because it's, and find your community, because that's what it comes down to, you know, and even if you love your hometown, leave your hometown, and maybe you'll find that you loved your hometown and you can come back, you know, but, like. That's always my advice to young people is, like, go go out there. Find people. <laughs> yeah. Margaret Cho has this bit where she talks about, like, how important it is, even though, like, as a, as a queer person, you're not necessarily responsible to be an example for your community, but you kind of are yeah. by accident, just by default. Mm-hmm. Yeah. She's like, so I think it's the job of every gay person, every trans person to just be out having a great time, looking happy. Yeah. Buying a lot of stuff at Whole yeah. Foods just to like <laughs> show kids like it does like it's a cliche but it like it does get better it can get better yeah, yeah. absolutely and I mean that's what's so important about Dylan Mulvaney for example do you know who that is uh, Dylan Mulvaney a treasure everyone mm. needs to follow Dylan Mulvaney <laughs> um, she is a trans woman and her whole thing is trans joy her yeah. entire channel is trans joy it. just all the time it's like she does these like day. Th- day 25 of being a girl like that's her whole thing and like she has made such an impact and been so positive and like I feel like part of me is like I just want that energy (laughs) to be so positive I'm just not a very positive all the time person it's just not who I am but like what she does is so important to be like and to normalize things that people don't talk about because it's seen as shameful so you just don't talk about it you know like what it's like to go through transition because she's not even been a whole year being out so like you see her go through the whole thing um and she's just so happy and so full of love and even when people send her hate like her her clapbacks are also still just so graceful (laughs) and full of love she's just so good i love her (laughs) definitely and we're both dylan so i'm like dylan dylan (laughs) (laughs) and then there's there's something there there's been a meme made about her now where she she was finding something out that the rest of the people that are trans that have been around for a long time know like that's a bad thing that she was about oh. to like stumble into. Oh. And so someone was like, Dylan, Dylan, no, Dylan, no. And so I'm like, haha, that's me. I'm like, yeah. I love that though, because I feel like there's so many, I mean, maybe this is just an occupational hazard of the fact that I'm a self like my my sort of track record of training has all been in self-injury and suicide. Right. Um, And so, like, everything I think about is sad all the time. Mm -hmm. (laughs) But, like, this reminder of, like, it's important to recognize that that there are a lot of really challenging things about existing in the world as a trans person because people are 
crappy a lot of the time. Yeah. Um, and also that that's not the entirety of the trans experience. Absolutely. And that there is room for joy and there is room for connection and there's room, like, mm-hmm. that you can validate that these things are really hard and it's not fair that it's hard mm-hmm. and it's not okay and we have to do things about it and not also forget that we don't want to just talk about bad stuff, mm-hmm. right? Which is, I have to remind myself because professionally I always talk about bad stuff. Right, yeah. yeah. No, because there is so much joy in it because, like, that's another thing that I think people that are cis don't understand because they're mm-hmm. always gendered correctly. But, like, yeah. when you have been gendered incorrectly for so long and people start using the right one, you're like, oh, oh, mm-hmm. thank you, yes. <laughs> like, that joyful feeling is, mm-hmm. like, so uplifting and it's so good like and to wear the clothes that you really feel comfortable in and look in the mirror like that gives you such joy that people don't understand because if you always look how you think you should look you don't understand but it's called like gender euphoria is what people started to call it and I love that because that's what people are always like oh well how do you know you're trans and it's like well people always say oh well it's because you're uncomfortable in your body you want to change this or that and I'm like no change change your pronouns or change what you're wearing into you know masculine or feminine and look at yourself yeah do you find joy in that because if you're really excited you might be trans like that is what my test that the test should be is like when you put on clothes that affirm your gender do you feel great because yeah start doing that that's where you're gonna find your joy and fulfillment because as hard as it is it's so much easier when you feel like yourself. Yeah. You know? You should check out Dylan Mulvaney. Uh, just because, will. like, she just exudes joy. Like, you just... Yeah. She's like, if everything goes right, in to a certain degree, like, obviously she's still faced that this external... Um, these external transphobias, but her resilience is amazing. Yeah. <laughs> just, I, I, I love her I so love much. It. But yeah. So, I guess, is there anything else important you think we should talk about as we're wrapping up? Um... I I mean, I, al- I always want to make the point of, like, when psychologists are focusing on, on trans mental health, that, like, it's not saying that trans people are inherently, like, sick or wrong or ill. But I feel like I already made that point earlier. Right. <laughs> it's just one of those, like, I always have this kind of bullet point of, like, I don't want to, I don't want someone to, like, take some snippet of what I said and be like, look, she's saying that, you know, all, everybody in this community is is, you know... Um, you know, sick or pathological or whatever. Right. Because, um, A, we know that there's lots of trans folks who don't struggle with suicidal thoughts or self-injury. Mm-hmm. Like, I don't want to imply that it's everybody. And when folks are, it's often related to these things that are not about the person as much as the environment around the person. Mm-hmm. Um. So, yeah, that's just the thing I always want to kind of emphasize but yeah I'm super excited about continuing this work um and just like building this pipeline um so that we have more folks in the field like I'd like to put myself out of a out of, not out of a job entirely but like out of this job right like right. I want there to be enough people doing this work that I can be like yeah I'm not I'm not the best person to do it peace mm-hmm. um which at this point we just you know unfortunately don't we don't have enough people in the pipeline with these identities who want to do this work. And also I think it's important that it's okay to be like a trans psychologist who doesn't study trans stuff. Right. Like, you know, I think sometimes there's this pigeonholing of, Oh, if you have this identity or this experience, you like, and you go into some kind of research field, you have to study that thing. Mm -hmm. Um, Where it's like, no, if you're a trans person and you want to be like, 
a developmental psychologist who studies, like, baby language development or whatever. Like, right. great. Like, go do that. Mm-hmm. Um, it shouldn't have to just be up to trans people to do the trans research. Like, if you want to do it, great. We should have more people in that field. And you should be able to do whatever the heck you want. Right. You know. You should be encouraged to do it, but don't feel like you have to do it. Right. It's like, not your obligation to, like, you know, solve these scientific questions. It's everybody's obligation to do what's best for them in their life, what you enjoy, mm-hmm. what's meaningful to you, all that kind of stuff. And assuming we have enough people supported to get the training to do those different things, then you can have people who do this kind of work and that kind of work and this other kind of work. And, like, there's enough open questions that we just need more people to to study them, whatever they are. So Yeah. Absolutely. It's been a wonderful having you. Thank this you. has been it's such been a good so conversation. Great to get to chat about this stuff. So Yeah. Um Yeah. Do you have anything you wanna usually we have comedians on here, so they like uh, plug their yeah. social medias. But uh, I, I don't have a Twitter. Um <laughs> somebody at a, a, a journal editor wanted to talk to me at a conference and then when we chatted, she was like, Yeah, I wanted to talk to you because you're spicy on Twitter. <laughs> Like, no one has – I'm from Wisconsin. Like, I'm a boring white lady. No one has ever called me spicy ever. <laughs> so I was like, oh, I'm spicy. And then and then Twitter did what it's currently doing. So now I'm like, I don't I don't know. But I do have a Twitter. It's uh, Sarah E. Victor, Sarah with an H. Um, I, I tweet pictures of cats, and apparently spicy takes about suicide prevention. <laughs> uh, yeah. If, if people are interested in more of my work, um, my website is sarahevictor.com. So – that's another right. place to check out. Well, thank you so much again for being on here. Um, we're going to – you can follow Cowboy Chemistry at Cowboy Chemistry, Cowboy Chem, Cowboy Chemistry Podcast on the various social medias because I didn't pick one. We have a Patreon now as a reminder. So if you want to hear me and Selena talk about Flubber, um, <laughs> where we talk about Flubber and how um, those men should have died when those bowling balls fell on their head. I think that's, is that everything? Yeah. Okay. Awesome. Um, Thanks so much. Thank you. And we'll put the exit music here. (laughs) Apoptosis is going mad. My liver's gonna fail. Maybe it's from the radium I use to paint my nails. Well, say you hate me, carbon date me, throw me in the sea. I'll be back with time because I'm made of stardust and chemistry. A stardust and chemistry. chemistry.